I've got a really great episode here for you today. It's an interview with photographer Arthur Leffo. And this the quality of today's episode, the things that I've gleaned and learned and the inspiration I personally took away from it makes me think I really should be doing a lot more of these interview style episodes. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn something. I know you will. And I hope you come away inspired. Uh, you know, Arthur is a really fantastic photographer and he's self-taught and he's had this amazing rise to more or less stardom in the wildlife photography world. He's leading his own trips and workshops. He's producing sensational content and he's doing so with his own very, very unique style. We get into a lot of stuff today, a lot of gems await, but without further ado, let's get right into it. I present to you photographer Arthur Leffo. Excited to be here today with Arthur Leffo. Uh, welcome to the Wild Photographer. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I know it's it's hard uh, getting a, a hold of guides out there. You're between seasons. Um, so yeah, thanks for making the time today. I'm, I'm stoked to chat with you and catch up. Uh, it's, it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, it has. Um, yeah. Man. Well, so yeah. So you're, you're like a really unique, interesting scenario here. And part of the reason I wanted to have you on is... Like in my mind, you're a kind of a relatively new photographer in the grand scheme of things, but you've had like a meteoric rise to like really, really high quality photography. Like in other words, I know that probably it seemed like a lifetime to you, but in in years, you've like kind of more or less started photography and are producing like some of the highest quality wildlife shots I see on any platform. And so I don't know. You might you might feel uh, otherwise in terms of your uh, your input and, and the longevity and all this, but I find it fascinating that you've accomplished so much in so little time, and like you're at a level well beyond a lot of pro photographers that have been doing it for a lifetime, and you have a lifetime to go. So it's pretty exciting. I feel like this is something interesting for the audience to hear about. Cause this is probably, it's in some ways it's, it's a bit of a dream, right? Like you've kind of taken this new Avenue, this new route um, with photography, with guiding, with wildlife and are just crushing it. So yeah. Do you mind kind of telling me a little bit about the story that got you to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to be completely honest, I think everything kind of uh, just unfolded in a way that made sense with regards to my life and, and the, you know, the big picture when I talk about this is that um, trusting my gut and doing things that were true to myself and that I just genuinely felt interested in on a soul level brought me, um, opened the doors that brought me to where I am, right? And and opportunities sort of presented themselves over time. Uh, but to give you a sense of a timeline, um, I was always into photography from a very basic standpoint growing up using my phone, um, you know, never really used a camera much, but knew how, you know, the inside features of iPhones and stuff worked to control exposure and all that. And I always just felt like I had um, an enjoyment of capturing still imagery um, and, you know, an interest in it, but I never found something that drove me to pursue it the way that I have in the last few years. Um, in 2018, when I went to Alaska uh, with Natural Habitat, um, I used my first camera, um, which was lent to me by the company. Um, and I actually even talked to you, I remember beforehand, and you gave me a little chi which I still think of and I still reference the same kind of teachings with regards to just like the most basic settings um, and what they do and how, you know, your ISO and your aperture and your shutter speed contribute to creating an image that might look different from another one taken with different settings. So it was a very rudimentary kind of like top level uh, understanding of photography. Uh, um, Justin Gibson uh, was a guide on that trip as well. So, um, you know, his knowledge was also useful in the field when I was starting to just practice taking photos and playing around with different stuff. And um, ironically, it's also Justin that led me to using my first um, Olympus now OM system camera um, 
at the time, which as soon as I used it, I just loved the interface. It felt simple. I was on a Canon PowerShop before then, which is a nice camera to just fool around on, but nothing to the level of a, a higher end, um, you know, wildlife uh, photo camera. Um, and I loved, I loved the interface and the feel of, of the Olympus. So I actually bought um, a lens before I left Alaska, before I even had a body, I ordered a refurbished body on Amazon and bought a lens and, and just came home and started playing around in Colorado, you know, would drive up Flagstaff and take photos of deer on the side of the road and um, take photos of sunrises out my door and in Boulder, uh, which are often really, really pretty uh, or sunsets too, um, you know, and, and, and really just casually enjoyed photography you know we'd go up to summit county to the ski house and there's foxes around there um so i'd take photos of the foxes any opportunity i had to take a photo i would and really just apply the knowledge that again very basic knowledge but at the end of the day like really the only knowledge you need other than figuring out the settings of your camera and like sort of some more minute inner workings but overall you know those three settings are really all you need to understand to get to a point where you can take an amazing photo that touches people, that has emotion, that inspires people. And, and uh, the following year uh, went out to Greenland, which was um, maybe less inspiring on a photogenic level. I really did enjoy the more abstract photography for ice, um, which is something that's always fascinated me. Um, but that was more of an inspirational trip on a soul level for myself, realizing that, you know, I needed to spend more time in the outdoors and, and, and find ways to share the outdoors with others as a profession, because that's essentially what I had been doing my whole life, right? From an early age, bringing people out camping that had never been camping or organizing all these crazy trips, paddling 80 miles down a river in Florida for a week straight on New Year's, um, you know, stuff like that, that I always sort of coerced my friends to uh, join me on these wild adventures, I would think up. And um you know, and and one thing led to the next. Uh, and when COVID struck, and you know, a lot of layoffs happened, and I ended up without a job. Um, sort of spontaneously decided to move out to um, Jackson Hole because I was in Denver. I was suddenly jobless, single, and COVID was not making city life very interesting. Uh, so I ended up in Wyoming. Um, um, sort of on a screw it, why not? kind of mindset, right? Uh, I can always come back to Colorado, which I did. Um, and, and, and I took having had no job and running out of unemployment benefits by the end of the fall, you know, I just took a basic job. Um, I just started plowing snow, um, which, you know, paid my bills and allowed me to have most of my days free because I was only working when it snowed early in the morning. Um, and it's tedious and hard work, but it pays well. Uh, it gets you outside. <laughs> me outside. And, and then the rest of the time, which was the majority of it, I found time to go out and, and look for wildlife. And, you know, um, I think really that move to get out to Jackson and, and, and put myself in an environment where I had the opportunity to work on my craft every single day, uh, every morning and every evening, I'd go out for a drive and look for wildlife. Um, you know, that put me in a position where I, quickly progressed in terms of my creative vision. But more importantly, I think something that really needs to be focused on is the connections I made and the uh, the people that I met through photography, which inevitably brought me um, new inspiration, new perspectives, new understandings, right? Um, I mean, so many amazing people and friends I've made over the last three years since I moved out to Wyoming. Um, but those connections and and kind of finding people to shoot alongside that had similar interests and similar creative visions um, allowed me to get to a place where I refined mine even further. Um, and really, I think the key thing I want to focus on when it comes to, you know, talking about this um, far too kindly meteoric rise, um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm only getting started, but I really appreciate those kind of words, but at the end of the day, it's finding something that you are truly passionate about and that, um, that really interests you. And, um, one of my close friends, Brooke, you know, has always said, like the key to taking a good photo is to care about what you're taking a photo about. And 
I couldn't relate to that any, any more than I still do today. Um, mostly because, you know, I think about other things that I've considered doing just for financial stability, like wedding photography. And like, I've never been able to bring myself to do it because I just have absolutely no interest in taking a photo, anything that does not exist in nature. You know what I mean? Um, uh, so all that to say that, you know, by pursuing, by following, you know, interests that were near and dear to my heart and by, you know, kind of just shamelessly um, messing around and creating more and more and working on my craft, starting with small things around my neighborhood and progressing to bigger and better things, you know, when I moved to Wyoming and eventually started um, um, leading trips up in Alaska um, is what led to me, what led me to where I am today. Um, and there's, there's been nothing more, but, but passion and a, a desire to get out there and to experience nature first, rather than trying to capture nature first. Right. It's always, it always comes back to being outside and just enjoying nature. Heck yeah. Love it, man. So, so many good words of wisdom there. Um, and yeah, I can, I can hear the passion coming through a couple follow-up questions from that. Um, one is what was that first lens <laughs> you bought before you left Alaska? I still have it. It's uh so it's a 40 to 150 F2.8, which on the crop sensor on the M system gives me 80 to 300 at F2.8. I thought that might be it, which is that single lens has made me pause multiple times in my very Canon centric career. Be like, should I switch over? Should I switch over? And for those of you in the audience that uh, didn't hear that, it's it's basically an 80 to 300 f2.8 throughout in a relatively small, relatively affordable package. It's like, what, $1,500? Yeah, it's like 1500 bucks. Um, and, you know, I've since paired it with their newest flagship lens, which is gives you the equivalent range of three to 800 at f4.5 all the way through, which is, which is insane. Mind-boggling lens. That's insane. Oh. Piece of equipment. I am jealous over those capabilities. If if Canon could come out with that, I would be really stoked. Although Canon did just come out with you know a price tag of nine thousand dollars, but a one hundred to three hundred two point eight, which is pretty cool. But it's one of their big old uh, yeah L series, like tip top of the line. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, I thought that was the lens you were gonna say. Uh, yeah, it is a. I still have it. It's great. Heck I yeah. love it. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then so the other thing, a little bit more deeper of a question is. In those early days, well, I should say, like the first photographs I saw when you're posting on social, probably shortly after you move up to Jackson Hole of, you know, moose in these beautiful reflection ponds, like right off the bat, just gold, like, like top, top level shots. And then, you know, it's like, I think people like, holy cow, like instantly you were taking show stopping photos. Um, and so, yeah, indeed a meteoric rise. Um, but Cal, what did you learn? Um, or like maybe, cause that's a big loaded question. Like what were some of the most valuable things you learned kind of from like a technique style from yourself as you were practicing in those, um, in those days when you really pivoted towards photography, um, from yourself or what did you learn from others that you were shooting with and specifically kind of like technique? I mean, I, I totally hear you on the idea of being passionate about the photos. And I think that probably is one of the biggest lessons um, and of course, networking and meeting people and, and getting influenced. But I'm just curious, like true technique and lessons photographically. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a twofold answer. Um, there's a couple lessons that I'll touch on that are maybe two or three that are uh, really useful from a technique standpoint while you're actually taking the photo. Um, uh, and then there's also, you know, some knowledge that I applied, which is, I guess relates back to technique, but it's more about anticipating and anticipation of wildlife behavior. Uh, so specifically relating to understanding wildlife behavior, but the first, you know, a few things that I think I applied immediately when I got out there that started helping me capture better images. The first thing, which I learned rather quickly uh, with shooting uh, with some friends out there is, is getting low, um, shooting eye level or below specifically with relation to creating, um, more softness in an image, especially when you're taking a portrait style wildlife photo, which most wildlife imagery ends up being portraits. Um, of course you get the wildlife and landscapes too, uh, which are slightly different, but 
overall, you know, I think getting low and using a low point of view um, and maximizing what a term I developed and sort of invented called the subject backdrop ratio, um, where basically it's it's just it's something I teach a lot of folks on on the tours I lead, but putting yourself in the mindset of thinking about how close am I to my subject and from my exact vantage point where I'm taking the photo, how much distance is there from my subject to the backdrop, right? And as soon as you get low, let's say you crouch, you're photographing, say, an elk or something, right? If you're standing up photographing the elk, there's a good chance that the background behind that elk is the floor that's 10 feet behind it. If you just take a knee, the backdrop instantly increases to 100 yards behind the elk, and you're instantly capturing a far more pleasing image right off the bat just by taking one minor positioning uh, adjustment. Um, so I think shooting low uh, was the first big thing that really, really changed the quality of my images. Um, the next thing was um, shooting far more images than I ever was before. So keeping my camera in burst mode, and you have all these crazy settings now for autofocus and you know subject autofocus and this and that. Um, assuming your shots are in focus, whichever way you choose to get them in focus, um, shooting at a higher burst rate was really fruitful because I realized that the moments that I'm trying to freeze when it comes to wildlife photography are split second instances that the naked eye can never notice. Um, that half or even 10th of a second when an animal is swinging its head around to look from one side of, you know, something in it, in its uh, plane of view and switching and looking to its other side. And as it swings its head, there's a 10th of a second where its eyes are directly locked onto you, um, which can happen naturally too, you know, if an animal looks at you, but that's less likely. Um, but that split second or whether it be the split second where the animal is just facing the perfect way and the back, you know, that it's taking the step, it's the, the, the right pace in the step, um, really, really minor changes in positioning on the animal's behalf for our subjects has a huge impact on the final image. So I realized that by shooting more images, which of course just takes up more memory and more time when you have to find the image, uh, just allowed me to have more selection to sift through. And, you know, what I find interesting is that despite, you know, having taken a lot of my best images with intention, uh, probably in the other half of them is taken not with that intention at all. And it, I only realize how good an image is when I go back and I look at my images and I'm like, well, thank God I was shooting 25 frames a second because I wouldn't have gotten this moment otherwise. Mm -hmm. So there's so much that happens that, you know, in, in amidst the excitement, amidst the, the emotion of being around wild animals, you don't notice because you're just so busy experiencing um, that happens that, that, you know, so many things happen that that could lead to amazing images. So shooting at a higher burst rate was was another big change I made. Um, you know, even going from 10 to 20 frames a second is a huge jump in the amount of images you might get or not get. Um, so that was another big thing. Um, and then and then the last thing, which which almost might seem obvious, um, but to me at the time it wasn't. Um, is, is simply when and where I choose to shoot with regards to light. Um, it's easy, especially at the beginning when you're getting into wildlife photography, to let yourself become completely enamored by your subjects and to just snap away at whatever you see, right? Um, the first time you see a bear in the wild, your instinct is going to be to take 2,000 photos that are mostly all going to be the same. And you're going to be really stoked, but the more you do it, the more you're going to realize that a lot of things impact the quality of an image beyond the subject that you're photographing it, right? The background, the positioning of the animal, like we just talked. And the last thing I think that really contributed to making, turning good images great is, is shooting where the light is best. So um, I have this saying where I, I suggest people to follow the light, right? So if I'm shooting in the early morning and it's an overcast day, I'm going to shoot in the open. Um, if, you know, I'm shooting midday and there's an epic wildlife sighting out in plain blaring noon o'clock sunlight, I'm going to enjoy the encounter, but I might not take a single photo. 
You know what I mean? Um, I'm instead going to choose to shoot midday in the forest where I might look for an owl roosting or, um, you know, something else just prowling in a more dimly lit environment that's more conducive to creating solid imagery. Um, so really just focusing on, on the conditions, right. And not shying away from bad weather. I think that bad weather makes the best photos. Um, you know, whether it be rain, snow, freezing cold, like whatever it is, you know, experiencing the elements and in all their harshness, however, that might, that might present itself, depending on where you are in the world, I think, uh, adds to images and adds to the story of what you're capturing with the animal. So thinking about light and following the light uh, to find the, the the best settings to then be able to apply those other two um, little tidbits are, those are the three big things that really brought my photography, I think, from a technique standpoint to the next level. And um, last but not least, you know, I think what really elevated it, and I'm just thinking about this because you mentioned the shot of the moose in the water which was an incredible encounter that I've been blessed to have a second time this fall uh, in the same location. Um, I actually just shared that photo last week or two weeks ago, um, but had this uh, another encounter with this beautiful bull moose in this absolutely beautiful watering hole beneath the Tetons. Um, and, um, you know, that's only possible because of knowledge of behavior, right? So I think a lot of people think about like, well, you know, you can know the animals and this and that, but at the end of the day, having a knowledge of the animals day-to-day, you know, routines, and just even, even if it's not on an individual basis, just general knowledge of animals tendencies based on the time of year and where, and applying that to where you are in the field, um, allows you to anticipate these moments to give you an idea, you know, with this moose, this was a, a local watering hole where at a specific time of year, moose hang out from time to time in this area and moose drink a lot of water, you know, uh, dozens of gallons a day of water. And, um, you know, just so happens that I had seen the same moose that morning, uh, and came back in the afternoon and saw the same moose laying in the same spot. He had most likely not gotten up all day. Um, and so I knew he'd be thirsty and I knew where the water was nearby. And so I sort of preemptively walked over there because I was thinking, well, there's no way I'm going to beat a moose out there. Once he starts walking, you know, he's, he's got me beat. Um, but that knowledge of that, you know, individual moose too, but the anticipation, the anticipation of knowing, Hey, he's probably going to go for a drink. I'd be thirsty too, led to, you know, those shots being possible. Um, and, um, you know, to kind of cap it off with regards to animal behavior, it's also, and, and bringing it back to just enjoying nature. I really always emphasize this because it's so easy to pigeonhole yourself as a wildlife photographer into really wanting to create one specific shot. Um, I've never gone out with the intention to create one specific shot. I always go out with the intention of let's see what's going on and kind of using the clues that are out at the time to see what might draw my interest, what looks interesting, what looks like it could be fruitful rather than telling myself, I'm going to go out today and get a photo of a moose under the Tetons. That's not how the best work is ever created. It's always kind of serendipitously letting things unfold and and trusting your gut and, and following, following clues that day. So those are, you know, to wrap it up, kind of a five big factors that allowed me to go from taking, I think, good to great photos rather quickly. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to hear you say all that. Cause as I'm hearing you notch off each of these techniques, I'm like that they all encapsulate your work so perfectly. Like that's what I think of when I think of the photos that, that you produce is it's like, it's choosing your background. It's getting low. It's getting that unique angle. It's, it's capturing that really special hint of behavior opportunistically with just kind of making lemonade, you know, like knowing the conditions, knowing the wildlife, and then just seeing how can I make this scene be the most beautiful it possibly can. So creating yeah. your own luck, really. You create your own luck. I I don't oh. believe in sheer luck. I mean, there's there's things that happen, but at the end of the day, it's it's by putting in the time and getting out there and and trying and just again enjoying your time out there that you get into these situations that a lot of people might label as luck. Yep. Yeah. No. Fully agree. Um, that makes me think of a couple uh, a couple of things. So yeah, the first one when you talk about that background, that, that ratio. Yeah. Super important point. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that again, just because for, for all the listeners out there, it's a really, really awesome technique. 
Uh, especially if you don't have the biggest, best lenses with those super big apertures, like the 2.8s and the 4s. Like my lens, it's a great lens, but like at four and 500 millimeters, it's like five, six, even 7.1. But if you can find a way to make that background behind your subject significantly greater in distance than the distance from you to the subject, you're going to get a great background blur each and every time. And like you said, if you can get down low and shoot up where, you know, the beautiful Tetons are in the background or those trees in the distance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's everything. And then the frame rate thing. So uh, I hope everybody caught that 25 frames a second is something that you referenced and going from 10 to 20, you think made a huge difference, which is staggering. Like that's, that's awesome information. I think it's super valuable to know because I got to, I got to admit, like I limit myself to about 10 frames a second because I don't want to go through all those photos. I don't want to uh, go through all the memory card buffering and whatnot. Makes me think I probably need to invest in a better memory card. What, uh, what do you look for? Cause you're, you're shooting on extreme burst mode. Are you looking at a certain minimum transfer rate to enable that? Or is your camera just kind of super powered to not have to Worry I think I, I have about I have about 90 shots when I'm shooting at 25 frames a second. I have about 90 shots before I hit my buffer. Um, I use the highest rate standard SanDisk, you know, ultra 200 megabytes a second. Um, yep. Nothing fancy. Um, I although I shoot at a high burst rate, I am still selective about when I shoot. Right. And if I'm shooting a burst, it's because, again, I'm anticipating something, for example, the animal swinging its head around. Or if this happened a couple of weeks ago, right, you're sitting in a creek with a moose drinking and you're waiting for the split second the moose, after God knows how long, having his head down drinking. It's an incredible how much water they can drink in one standing. Um, but, you know, waiting for that split second where the moose lifts its head and the water's dripping out of its mouth, right? Those are the moments where I'll choose to to burst because those are the moments I know I'd like to anticipate. Um, or sometimes in some cases, um, and most often when I hit my buffer is when you're uh, capturing something that might require more than just a few seconds bursting. For example, if a bear is walking straight towards me with its cub um, and I'm laying on the ground, um, you know, I'm going to take way more than 90 shots of, you know, the 30 seconds this bear is walking towards me. So then it becomes, it's like intermittent bursting. So I avoid hitting my buffer. So it, there is strategy behind it for sure. And I think using a bigger, faster card, which now like the R5s take those, uh, those newer, the names escaping me, but those newer, like really big format, two terabyte cards. Yeah. Um, I forget what it's, they're called. It's like a, is it Compact Flash Express? I think it's called. Yeah, it's, something like CFE Express. CFE yeah, Express. there's like two formats. There's the A and there's the B. And I can't remember which one my R5 yeah. takes, but it's it's the less expensive of the two. I only know that because I work with a videographer uh, quite often who takes the other kind. And they're like five times as expensive just because yeah. Sony takes those. So I am still selective about when I shoot, right? And I have a general idea of, you know, the behaviors that are worth capturing versus the behaviors that are not worth capturing versus, so I, I still feel like, you know, I come home with a respectable quantity of photos to sort through. And at the end of the day, I don't find it that hard to sort through, say, 500 photos of like the same 30 second encounter. What I find challenging and tedious is sorting through you know, 500 photos of like 12 different encounters. To me, that's more work because you actually have to look at every individual photo. Whereas if I have 500 photos of an encounter, I can flip through them on my Lightroom rather quickly. And when the photo, when a photo stops you in your tracks, you know, it's the one, right? Nice. Like I can flip through rather quickly, maybe a quarter, half second per photo, but there's always that one photo where I'm like, whoa, and I, and my mind just naturally wants to stop on it. And generally those are the ones that I trust. I kind of tr like to trust my gut when sorting through my photos and, and you have a general idea of what it is you're looking like. Right. And in those photos, you might have a burst of say 200 photos, um, 180 of those, the animals either not looking at you or the eyes are closed. So, you know, you're not going to use those. Right. Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll see AI features in the future that'll identify photos with eyes closed, eyes open and all this crazy stuff. Right. But as of now, it doesn't add too much time to my workflow. And what I tell myself is I can always buy more memory, but I can never buy more time. Um, and so I don't worry about deleting photos. Um, I just go through my photos and I 
edit the ones I like, and I back up everything I've ever shot, even if it's a photo of the ground. Really? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I never, I don't put a single second into culling my photos just because two reasons. First of all, it takes up a lot of time. Um, and again, I can always buy more memory. Um, and second reason is that there's a lot of photos that I've gone back to old photo shoots from years past that I may have overlooked that I end up finding and liking sometimes more than the original photos I edited. Mm -hmm. So I am kind of a, a weirdo in that sense that I never delete a photo. Yeah. Now I, th I think it's sage advice. And like, I'm going through some polar bear photos from a recent trip. Um, and it was just an epic one. It was a like late season. It was snowy bears were everywhere. And I'm, I have like a very specific workflow of how I kind of cull the herd. Um, I also don't delete much, but I do delete some, but I'm, I'm now on like my tippy top best batch of photos. I'm editing them. I'm like really digging in deep. And then I just went back to like my, so those are like my five-star photos. And I just went back to the one-star photos that I sometimes delete. Um, and I have, you know, two, three, four in the meantime. And I'm like, some of the one-star photos, I'm like, ooh, now that I've looked at what I thought was the best of that sequence, now some of the one-star photos, I'm like, ooh, that's even more captivating or as captivating just because I think I'm, I'm so not tired, but like used to looking at the photos I thought were best, something different really jumps out to me. So yeah, I think that's super good advice on, um, on multiple levels. And I really like your idea of like skipping through the photos, going through quickly and what yeah. stops you in your tracks. And that's the one like awesome way to, to process all that stuff. Yeah. Super cool. Well, while we're on the editing talk, this is another thing I wanted to hit in today's conversation. Cause I, view you as a processing guru. Um, and I, I think that you, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I think you took processing and editing very seriously from the get-go. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like from the get-go, like you, your photos always look different. They always looked, you know, better for lack of a better word. Um, but like polished, but in a very raw way. Anyway, I want to, I want to hear about your, your view of editing, your, you know, your workflow, anything that you don't view as sensitive proprietary information that you're going to sell as an online course later or something, you know, within reason, whatever you want to share by, yeah, editing, processing, like what, what is the Arthur way? Yeah. So that's, I think that's a really interesting point to bring up um, for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, photography has evolved so much. Um, and I wasn't around pre-editing, so I can't really speak to that, but I, I, you know, I have a general sense of what, what it used to be, you know, cause I've shot on film. So I know what that's like, and I've shot DSLR. So I know it's that, what that's like. Um, and, and we've seen really a sort of reinvention of photography time and time again, over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and the way I describe it nowadays is that photography to me is a three-part process, right? If you go back to the film days, everything came down to one shot. You had your settings, you took one shot, it was either there or it was not. End of story, right? There was nothing else to it besides fully getting the shot right in the moment. And the more we've developed, you know, the industry from a from a tech standpoint and uh, all these new features and higher resolution images and shooting raw and this and that, uh, you know, we get to a point where, as I was saying nowadays, photography to me really is a three part process. Um, taking the shot is just the first part. Um, the last part, which I'll expand on is the editing piece and the central piece, which I think a lot of people oftentimes, uh, maybe not overlook, but you know, consider consider a little too lightly um, is choosing the right photo. And as I mentioned, we're taking more photos than we ever have because we're filling cards at record speeds. Um, and choosing the right photo is really such a key component of creating a beautiful image, right? It's not just taking the photo. It's not just editing the photo. It's having the right one of the thousands or whatever it is you may have taken of that single moment. Um, but to go back to the editing, I think that editing is what has given rise to 
uh, so much variety and so much new and inspiring work out there from so many different people, right? What I love about editing um, is that you can be shoulder to shoulder with the same, with another person, one of your closest friends, enjoying one of the most exciting wildlife encounters of your life. And you don't need to worry about taking the same photo as that person because more than likely that person captured the photo in a different way, framed it differently, has a completely different vision and feel for that moment, and therefore is going to edit it in a completely different way. And, um, you know, I think that is incredibly inspiring because it really shows you that you can create absolutely anything now with the post-processing software you have. Uh, that being said, the way that I see post-processing and I relate to it is that it's it's really, uh, for me, a way for me to bring back into the image um, the feelings and emotions of how the moment felt in person to me personally um, back into an image, right? When you're shooting raw and you get onto your computer and you have that image, it's not going to be as as glorious and saturated and contrasted and the lighting is not going to be exactly what it was in person naturally because you're just working with raw data but having lived that moment that that moment lives on in, in your mind right and in your memory and to me when i edit i'm just trying to sort of recreate this moment as i experienced it um you know i'll never forget when i started getting into photography seriously and i was very proudly sending my parents a lot of photos i was taking my mom would always say well is this edited and i'm like well mom everything you see everywhere on planet earth is edited nowadays mm-hmm. does it look fake to you does it look edited and she's like no but i was just curious i'm like well if it doesn't then clearly you know it looks real natural there's nothing wrong with it um and i think uh to me that's that's really where the artistic creative expression piece comes out, right? Uh, cameras are getting increasingly easy to work with, and we're seeing the the balance in this three step process. You know, back in the '90s, being fully focused on capturing the photo, we're seeing more and more shift towards how not just getting the photo, but then how you bring that photo to life and what that, that photo felt like to you and what you can make it feel like to others. Um, so when I edit, it's, it's really just, a, it's, it's a very intuitive process. Um, and to be completely honest, I've never taken a single course on editing. All I've done is mess around and find out. Um, and, and edited with other people that I, you know, friends, uh, people around me. I think that's one of the most beneficial things for me was editing with others around me. Because anytime you edit with someone, you see them do something to edit their images that you're like, oh, I never thought about doing that. Or it's cool you do it that way. And you you pick up new things that you, you know, integrate into your workflow and refine your creative vision with. Um, With regards to my editing process, I really just focus on you know, once I've selected an image that I feel like is is worthy, um, is is bringing back the natural vibrance and emotion to those images uh, through um, very very complex uh, and not organized. When I say complex, I just mean that it's like very intuitive, right? But like localized edits. I use gradients and uh, brushes more than anything. Oftentimes I can even edit an image entirely using solely gradients and brushes and never touching the general features on an image. And I almost always will, because at the end of the day, when you're wrapping it all together, I find that it's helpful for me to get back uh, and, you know, put some finishing touches in the general, uh, you know, edit panel, but, you know, darkening backgrounds and foregrounds and creating subject separation by using, you know, effects like clarity and dehaze, uh, or, you know, having different contrast levels throughout an image, depending on where you're editing, or even different um, temperatures, right? Using, say, a cooler backdrop when you have a warmer subject, uh, or vice versa. Finding creative ways to, to make things pop, and thinking about where your eye is naturally drawn to, um, and removing distractions, I think, is is kind of the bulk of my workflow, and 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 finding a way to do it in a way that 
that feels real and and natural and puts you in that place where you can you can see that scene as if you were there yourself. Um, and that takes time and that takes a lot of messing around and a lot of finding out, um, you know, uh, a lot of really, really poor edits. I would love to, you know, one of these days I should just post a bunch of my old crappy edits just so that people can <laughs> see. they don't all end up good. Um, a lot of experimentation um, and a lot of trusting my gut. Right. Sometimes I edit an image. It takes me five minutes and it's done. And I just know I'm like, boom, that's it. There's nothing else I need to do. Sometimes I edit it. I'll work on it for 10 minutes. I don't really feel myself getting anywhere. I'll put it down and I'll come back to it a week later. Sometimes I won't touch a photo and, or even come close to editing it until years later. Um, sometimes it takes friends of mine sitting next to me as I sort through photos being like, whoa, that's a really cool photo you should edit that to, for me to realize like, Oh crap, I hadn't noticed this photo and I hadn't seen it the way you see it. That's really cool. Um, so that's kind of my workflow when it comes to editing, really a lot of experimentation, um, a lot of localized edits that are really focused around creating separation from my subject in the backdrop or in the, in the case of, you know, images where you have wildlife in landscapes kind of marrying the two in a way that, you know, brings attention to the subject mainly, but also, um, you know, keeps the backdrop in a place where it's still interesting and provide and add something to the image. Um, that's kind of what my workflow is centered around. Um, but I think the key word here is intuitive and, and yeah, intuitive and, and, um, you know, spontaneous, so to say, just like how I choose my photos. I let my gut do the talking, um, so when I edit, I kind of do the same thing. I'll sort of gaze at an image while I'm making edits rather than looking very specifically at specific points. And I'll kind of just try and get the big picture and I'll I'll zoom out and make the photo really small so I can barely see it. And all I can see is just like colors blurring together. I'll zoom it way in to look at the detail and I'll saturate it all the way to then let myself feel when the saturation feels right, right. Or remove all the color and slowly bring it back so that I can just feel it out, you know, do really drastic things to my image to sort of distract myself in a way from, from what I was originally doing and let like the real natural feel of an image come back to light. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that I do almost the exact same thing in terms of those sliders. Like if, if I'm not sure if I need to adjust the slider, I'll say, let's see what it's like, you know, to go to a hundred or to negative a hundred or whatever the scale might be. Um, obviously exposure, you kind of know what you're going to get, but when you start messing around with things like the, the blacks or the contrast, or even, even like the, the, the sort of meta changes like the dehaze and the clarity, it's, it gives you a real appreciation. And I will often use that to say, Ooh, this, made the background look really good it ruins a subject but man the background looks really cool when i just put a little touch of dehaze on it or, or whatever a lot of dehaze let's say um and so how how great is that new quick selection tool uh of like I, oh, I mean everything they've everything they've developed on lightroom in the last in the last couple of years is insane the subject yeah. selection backdrop the sky the i mean they even have um lens blur now yeah early access, but I've really enjoyed using that in the last couple of weeks. Um, same with like point color, you can edit colors so specifically now, uh, so intuitively. Um, it, I mean, everything they're adding is amazing. Of course, the denoise capabilities across the board, whether it's Lightroom or, um, you know, Topaz that you're using to denoise your photos are through the roof. So you, you can really do so much with images nowadays and and so many of my images are images that you know before we had access to these tools you know would have been good images but not like images that are as good as what i turned them into um and and really just having that raw file and all these crazy awesome features allows us to to do so much and, and that's what makes it so unique again for for you to be taking photos um of a subject, even when you're shoulder to shoulder with someone else, um, you're going to end up with totally different results, which is just, just an awesome feeling. Yeah. What I love is it, it allows you indeed to be at the right place at the right time, whether it is the unique lighting, whether it is the unique behavior, 
and you know that like even if you kind of botch the settings a little bit like it's gonna be a great photo you can turn it in you can really make lemonade which is i think probably the the most powerful way i use um uh, you know photoshop i use adobe camera raw not quite lightroom but it's it's the same thing um is yeah it's like okay i i did the work i nailed the that moment where the polar bear is sparring with both you know both bears looking directly into each other's eyes kind of thing yeah that's great so with with um with your workflow is there is there any specific slider or feature that you feel is like holy cow i discovered something really special here that i think does set things aside and what i what i uh mean by that is like some obviously we all know how to use exposure and contrast and like you just kind of dink around and mess with that but is there anything in there like do you go into the full photoshop and you use one of these crazy like gaussian blurs or iris but you know like that sort of stuff and and i'll tell you like one of my things that i found over the years just as an example is as obscure as it is is decreasing the blue luminance um very much mirrors the effect of a polarizer and like that's one of those things that like when i'm teaching classes or on a trip and people ask me about polarizer or just ask me about unique editing things I'm like you know one thing i found which is really interesting is decreasing blue luminance is very much like a polarizer for skies and it's like holy cow i would never have tinkered with that because it's so deep in the depths of like your color mixer and you know how often do you need to really adjust luminance but anything like that you know i i guess yes and no um the reason why I say no is because I edit every single photo very differently. Um, I shouldn't say differently. I have similar approaches with every photo, but every photo I edit, I start from scratch. I don't use presets. I don't use anything. Every photo is entirely edited from scratch. And, um, you know, in some cases where I might drop clarity, for example, to, soften my background a bit um which is different now with the lens blur effect because you can get really really crazy with it um but you know in some photos i might actually raise clarity um i find you know to go back to the yes is is that i use a lot i use clarity and dehaze a lot to soften images um to create artificial light sources in my images um paired with stuff like exposure right so i might use a radial gradient coming out of a corner to make it look like a beam of light coming down onto the subject um you know kind of finding hacks like that to add to, to make changes to an image that will will add an element of depth to it um i think is the biggest thing i've done right uh, a lot of the times it's it's you know localized edits on the background localized edits on the animal. Um, I think to me that it's really a, a combination of all those things. Um, there is one thing though that I discovered that I really love that has allowed me to bring more, bring colors back into the way I actually saw them and kind of make the contrast and the tones between the colors a little bit more aligned with uh, the moment, which doesn't require individual edits, like on the on the uh, you know the color mixer where you're choosing your blues, for example, um, or your greens or whatever it is, and making specific edits to the luminance and saturation of those. Um, but at the very very bottom, if you're on Lightroom Classic, um, at the very very bottom there is a calibration panel. Um, so you you know you have all your color mixer tone curve detail lens corrections lens blur effects calibration and it's way at the bottom it's the last thing and you have three colors that you can calibrate red green and blue and it i don't know how to exactly explain what it does but essentially it sort of counterbalances opposite colors so like blues and oranges you'll edit them and they'll get like either more purple and more green or like more teal and more you know either bringing them further apart from one another or closer to one another strictly with regards to the shades of the colors hmm. um, that calibration panel has been super super useful in me applying final touches to bring colors really to a place where i feel like they're not only 
aesthetic and visually pleasing, but also just kind of match the moment a little bit better. Sometimes I find, especially when you're shooting in dimly lit environments, which happens a lot um, in wildlife photography, because you're shooting early and late overcast days are great. Um, so sometimes your colors can go a little flat depending on the color, the lighting conditions. And, and it's been one of those things that's really helped me uh, bring color back into my images or bring them out a little more in a way that feels natural. Um, so if you haven't messed around with your color calibration panel way on the bottom, that is something that's been very useful for me that I use on almost every single image nowadays. Cool. That's a gem. That's exactly what I was looking for. Is Because I think we all have some interesting little hack that's not real commonplace that is probably designed for something else that we've tinkered enough with. And that's that's exactly it. So nice. I'll have to try that out on this batch of photos and editing. This is great. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I really love it. And, you know, it might just make your your yellows a little more orange and your blues a little bit more teal, you know, and and. Mm -hmm maybe just four or five notches on the slider and a minor saturation adjustment. And you're like, Oh wow, that looks really nice. You know, cool. I'm looking forward to trying that out. Nice. Thanks. Um, well, cool. So you, you're a, when I think of your photographs, um, obviously I referenced the moose earlier and I see a lot of Jackson wildlife foxes, but I do think of you primarily as a, a bear photographer, at least the majority of your photos and you're a bear guide as well. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I know you've been doing a lot of guiding this year for bears uh, up in Alaska, but yeah, um, just kind of want to hear a little bit about your your journey there, what you're doing with bear photography, and also kind of telling the audience, like, what are your thoughts on, like, if you were to be talking to a friend, like, how to get the best bear photos, like the when, the where, the technique, the gear, you know, sort of in a succinct way, we could probably have, like, eight hours of instruction yeah. on this. <laughs> um, but just kind of like, you know, what's your thought having done a lot of bear guiding? Let's hear about that first. But then also what I've learned is if you want to just nail the experience, nail the shots, here's mm -hmm. what I recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So um, bears are, have definitely become a huge focus of mine. Um, when I describe myself as a wildlife photographer, I generally – I generally describe myself as a high latitude megafauna photographer. Um, that being said, you know, the most charismatic animals at high, lati high latitudes that fall into the megafauna category are probably bears for a lot of people. Um, and I've always personally related to bears very, very deeply. Um, I've been fortunate enough to now, you know, lead bear trips in, in several regions across the world. Um, within Alaska from Katmai to Lake Clark to Southeast Alaska, um, uh, into Yellowstone, which of course is very different than bear viewing in Alaska. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of really diverse experiences with really different bears, which are all influenced by their own, you know, environmental factors, food availability, human presence, bear population, stuff like that, everything that affects their uh, what we call overt reaction distance, which has made being around them just that much more fascinating because I feel like I'm always discovering um, new individuals, right? And, and, and observing new behavior. And it's kind of like an endless resource of just amazing, um, amazing viewing, you know, right? Cause you always see something new and you always learn something new around bears, which has made them uh, such a, such a beloved animal of mine to spend time around. Um, so the la this last summer, I was in Lake Clark National Park um, working at Silver Salmon Creek Lodge, um, small family-owned lodge in Lake Clark. Um, really, really awesome uh, bears and really, really awesome bear photography opportunities. Um, the year before I was, uh, or a few years before I was out in Alaska and Southeast um, leading bear trips that were fly-out trips to Admiralty and Chichagoff Islands. Um Again, very different bears. You're talking about a different subpopulation. Um, they have different habits year round. They have different comfort levels, um, completely different level of habituation, which which makes them different and interesting to photograph, right? And I think that when photographing bears, that's sort of um, what I focus on, right? Is telling the story of of what it what it feels like for me to be around these specific bears. Um, 
based on, you know, where I am. So if I'm in Southeast Alaska, where bears might take a lot longer to warm up to your presence um, and to show themselves or, you know, walk near you. Um, a lot of the times, you know, the photos I'm capturing there tell more the story of sort of mysterious bears emerging from, you know, dense forests um, as they have down there in the Tongass. Um, so the photos might be more landscape-ish, right? You might have a smaller bear in frame. You might have just a completely different set of emotions from those photos you're capturing rather than fighting the conditions and the and the conditions that you're given and the encounters that you're given and trying to zoom in all the way and and get real close which is everyone's first instinct is to zoom in as far in as you possibly can it is isn't it it is awesome to just zoom in and see details on an animal but you know in some cases it's counterintuitive to the to the photo you're creating um versus you know bears in lake clark or in katmai which might have a far higher comfort level um where, you know, maybe you're capturing very, very intimate, um, you know, full like frame filling images where you're focused on, you know, the intensity of the closeness to the animal that that you experienced um, um, or, you know, very, very specific behavior like, I don't know, two cubs acting cute. Um, so really just leaning into uh, the conditions that you're given and you said this earlier, but I think it's for, for a basic saying, it's, it's, it's a very true one, you know, making lemonades out of lemons, you know, you're not always going to be given encounters that, you know, are incredible and flawless. Uh, a lot of the time it comes back to telling the story in a way that, um, you know, is, is true to your experience out there. And also, um, you know, true to what you, what you're given that day. Um, and, and making, creating the best image out of the conditions and, and the certain environment you're in. So that that's, you know, and, and to me, that all relates back to bears. Um, in, in other ways, you know, I think when I've spent time with another animal, I spend a lot of time with is moose, right? Um, you know, that, that still rings true across all species, but I have this personal connection to bears and that really has allowed me to, to see them you know, so differently as individuals, whereas I can, you know, take a photo of the same bear on multiple days and get completely different images, you know, moose, for example, which I love dearly, but, you know, you go to the same place to photograph a moose and, you know, there's only so much that you can work with, with moose, whereas bears give you so many opportunities to create unique images based on their behaviors. Um, so when it comes to bear photography, I think focus on the behavior, focus on, you know, the bears that, that you're watching and, and sort of capturing them in a way that that is truthful and tells a story to those bears. I mean, it goes without saying, I think everybody listening to this would probably agree, treat all the animals you're around with respect first and foremost, and a photo is never worth um, compromising an animal's um, well-being or peace of mind, um, no matter how minute of an inconvenience you might be bringing to their day. It's never worth it. Um, so that's that's kind of my best advice, you know, um, when it comes to bears is is just focus on the individuality of these animals and trying to capture uh, stories um, through their behaviors without without, you know, forcing them and kind of just like letting yourself slow down. I think something we also also do as photographers, we have is we have two things. We have the tendency to to get really excited and take a lot of photos without thinking about what we're taking photos about. So first advice to that point is slow down and put your camera down. Um, watch what's happening because only by watching what's happening, will you be able to notice these behavioral, you know, um, displays and, and maybe anticipate behavior, right? If you're looking, this happened to me and I'm just going to use it because it was a failed, failed photo for me. That would have been a great one. But, um, we were, uh, down in Katmai photographing some brown bears and it was a beautiful sunrise and there's this gravel spit at this river mouth where this bear was walking out and it's backlit with fog lighting up in the sunrise. I mean, just like picture perfect photo conditions. Like you just roll up and you're like, this is something out of a damn movie. Like it is so unbelievably perfect and beautiful. 
And naturally my excitement got to me and I just started zooming in and taking photos of this bear. And I did get great photos, but what I missed is um, a bald eagle that was at the very end of the spit. And out of nowhere, this bear that I was fully zoomed in on starts running towards the bald eagle playfully, curiously. And the bald eagle takes off and a friend of mine actually got this photo, but you have the silhouette of a brown bear running with a bald eagle flying towards it. And this just like gorgeous, explosive sunrise backlight behind it. And of course I didn't get it because I was zoomed into the bear. And had I put my camera down even for two seconds, right? I would have gotten maybe like 20 less photos of the same ones that had been taken, but I would have noticed, Hey, there's an eagle at the end of the spit. And if this bear decides to interact with this eagle, that's the moment you really want. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, with bears focusing on behavior, slowing down, putting your camera down, and 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 not fighting the conditions that you're given, um, especially with large carnivores, um, you know, oftentimes they dictate the encounters. Uh, and so I think leaning into what you're given rather than fighting it, and that also goes from an editing standpoint, um, is is always beneficial. And I say editing because sometimes you know. You get to a photo and it, you're like, oh man, it's just like a little dark and like, well, if it's a little dark, lean into it, make it darker and bring attention to the highlights. Or if it's too bright, you know, maybe focus on, maybe there's an interesting element in the shadows or something. So always leaning into what you're given and and making lemon lemonade out of lemons, I think is, is a good approach. Heck yeah. Yeah. I, you saying that about the darkening, it makes me kind of remember back to some of my favorite photos of yours is. I think some of your best or my favorite, whether it's what you feel is your best or others, you know, who knows, but I am always curious, even lighting. It's, it's not even lighting, you know, it's, it's not an even exposure. It's, it's, it's very, very dark with this beautiful bright spot or the opposite. And I, I feel that that is a super valuable lesson for photographers these days that wish to differentiate themselves, wish to do something different is thinking away from even like, well, I don't want to say even lighting. That's, that's a different thing, but even exposure, like that, that yeah. zero level exposure, that 18% gray across the screen, yeah. you know, forcefully taking really dark photos. I do this all the time when I'm like guiding in places like Borneo is it's a dim rainforest. Like don't even walk out your door with an even exposure, you know, yeah. go, go negative yeah. right off the bat, like yeah. make it dark. It's a dim forest. Yeah. It's going to be quote unquote underexposed, but it's, it captures the vibe. So that's great. Another thing you said, I've heard this from so many great photographers, um, and I'll admit it's something that I actually have a really hard time with is indeed just watching the scene for a little bit and like not, not just grabbing your camera and shooting away. And like, I'll be honest, I'm, I do not take that advice. I'm bad at it and I wish I was better, <laughs> but another person, you know, you here, uh, showcasing the merits of that. And it's, I think it's a super valuable thing because so, the very best photographers say the same thing is like, always let the scene unfold, watch it, have that um, wider view and see what's going on. Cause that's when the really special shots happen. So yeah, I just wanted to underline. You will, you will miss, you know, I think it's, it's natural for us to not want to do that because we're so tempted to just capture every shot we can, which I mean, undoubtedly you're missing shots by not shooting all the time. But then are you going to be more upset that you missed a couple good shots or more upset that you missed the absolute shot that you wanted? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, every so many shots have come about where like I have great shots the first however many minutes or hours of an encounter. But it culminates into this moment where, you know, you're settled in and you're focused and you're aware of what's happening and you're in tune with the animal's behavior. And you're like suddenly you're like, oh, like this is what I want. And, and when that spark comes into your mind, there's no question about it. And I think something that you said with regards to like the, the dim forest just rings true and made me think of this thing back to editing. Um, when I take images, I think this is just something I wanted to tag on when I'm shooting in the field, I'm always thinking as I take the photo about how I'm going to edit the photo. So I don't take the photo just for the sake of taking the photo. Sometimes you do because you have to think quickly, right? And you just react, take the photo. Boom. I don't care. There was like a half second. This bird flew across my frame. At least I got it. But when you have the time, really think about what am I going to do to this photo in post? How am I going to edit this photo? And that can totally change the way you capture an image. I've gone from an even exposure to drastically underexposing a shot just because of that, or 
uh, overexposing a shot as well, which is another, you know, sometimes I willingly blow out the majority of my image, knowing that I can salvage the parts that I need. Right. And I think it's always striking that balance between what can I salvage and post and what is editable data, so to say, which as long as you're not clipping on either end is always to some extent editable. Um, but really just, just thinking about the end product while you're in the moment has been a really, really beneficial practice for me to incorporate into my creative flow. Super good advice. I love that. I love that shoot to edit. Um, that's what we're doing, right? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, as we round out this discussion, it's uh, shameless plug time. Where where can people find you? Where where is Arthur Leffo? How how? Yeah, can absolutely. So um, I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram. That's my most active platform under Arthur Leffo, just my name. Um, my website's ArthurLeffo.com. I've got a, a print shop that I'm constantly updating up there. Um, and then um, I also have through my personal uh, Instagram and website. You should have access to my company, uh, Instagram and website, which is think wild expeditions. Um, we're hosting small, really, really intimate, generally two to one guide to guest ratio or guest to guide ratio, uh, wildlife photography experiences and expeditions, um, around the world. Um, of course started in Yellowstone cause that was an easy first thing, but, uh, we're entering our second year in business and have a trip to Churchill into Southeast Alaska lined up and some really exciting things on the horizon for 2025 that includes coastal wolves and other exciting projects. So lots to come uh, from myself and from uh, my business partner, Brooke and I on the think wild end of things. Um, so yeah, it'd be, it'd be awesome to have you guys along on the journey. I love that name. Think wild. This is great stuff. Well, I'll be sure to put all those references in the show notes um, and gosh, Arthur, it's been great to connect. It's, it's been yeah. too long. Uh, I feel even though we haven't like talked much more of her messages and short, you know, blips here and there over the years, it's like, I, I follow you along so closely. I'm like, I know exactly where you're at and what you're doing. So it, it doesn't feel like it's been all that long, but nevertheless, uh, super good to connect. And thanks for joining me today. Yeah, totally dude. Awesome. Guys, that was a lot of fun. I seriously learned so much and I hope you did as well. As always, we would love to hear comments, ideas, suggestions from you. Email me at wildphotographer.podcast at gmail.com, wildphotographer.podcast at gmail.com. I want to hear ideas for episodes, questions you might have, whether it's for one of our snapshots, shorter episodes, interview subjects, you name it. Love to hear from you. I hope you learned a lot today and enjoyed the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. See you next time.